Hello, and welcome to a new episode of The Lee Show Podcast. I am here with my special guest, Edward Ludwak. Edward is an outstanding author and strategist. He has experience advising governments and military leaders for more than four decades, I believe. And uh, he has what I think is the most interesting Twitter account that I follow. Uh, I'm honored to have him here with me today. Uh, Edward, I'd like to cover a few broad areas, and then we can see where the conversation takes us. So um, let's start with China, if that's okay with you. Yeah. With regards to China, I want to cover a few areas. Um, The first is Taiwan. What do you think is the likely one-year, five-year, and maybe 10-year outcomes with regards to Taiwan and uh, the the increasing uh, military provocations around Taiwan. Well, um, does Chinese uh, threats directed at Taiwan have had consequences? One of them is that the government of Japan, which um, recognized uh, Taiwan China's sovereignty over Taiwan but also recognize that, as a matter of fact, Taiwan is an independent uh, democracy. Uh, Because of these threats, the the Japanese government has moved out of its neutrality. And in the voice of the uh, defense minister, Mr. Kishi, who happens to be the brother of former Prime Minister Abe Shinzo, made a a very specific statement that Japan will not be indifferent, will not be indifferent uh, to the security of Taiwan, that the security of Taiwan is important for the security of Japan, which means that the United States is not alone. These days, uh, in 2022, the Japanese Navy is quite formidable. They certainly have the world's most effective um, non-nuclear submarines that are uh, definitely uh, immune to detection by the Chinese. And when a defense minister and a defense minister like him, Kishi, a man of great importance, made such a statement, it's a very, very important statement. There's a new prime minister now in Japan, but that prime minister has not changed the policy. And so this is significant. Now, as for the Chinese themselves, um, the difference that Xi Jinping has made to the long-standing Chinese position is that Xi Jinping has uses the language of war. He makes speeches all the time, calling on. He wants the Chinese uh, army to be ready to fight, and he uses combat readiness. But the actual term, which in the United States means combat readiness, means that, let's say, the, this, uh, this brigade or this division has all the batteries it needs and the equipment. Readiness in, is administrative. Uh, you have all the bits and pieces there lined up. Uh, are your, your airplanes uh, functional? Uh, are they ready to fly and things like that? In the Chinese terminology, actually means readiness for combat, 
moral readiness, readiness to really fight and, and do it and risk your life and so on. He keeps talking about it in the context of a country where soldiers are typically uh, single children. They represent the only child of two, two family lines. Family lines are very important in China. I mean, we do care who our grandfather is and great-grandfather. We don't actually think about our great-great-great-grandfather, but these lines of descent are central to the moral existence of Chinese. And so when, the, and the, the, when that single soldiers died and four of them died in fighting in June 2020, it becomes a problem for Xi Jinping. The second thing about Xi Jinping is that he is very conscious that the Chinese people have historically not been good soldiers. He knows that in 1945, when the uh, Hiroshima and so on and Nagasaki caused the Japanese to accept an armistice, at that moment, the Japanese army was still controlling Beijing, Nanjing, Shanghai, Guangdong, and Hong Kong and so on, plus a lot of stuff in depth. And this was a, the, the same Japanese army that was busy fighting in Burma against the British and fighting in the islands against the Americans. With their left hand, the Japanese could control China because the, the famed Chinese communist guerrillas, they hardly attacked and when they did, they lost. The nationalist armies could defeat the Japanese if they had 25 to 1 superiority. With 10 to 1, they didn't quite hack it. So Xi Jinping, the rest of the Chinese may all believe that China won the World War II because it's what they're taught in school and so on, that actually it was the Chinese. The Americans were, you know, somehow involved, but it was the Chinese who defeated the Japanese. Yeah, it was the Chinese. They made many films about that, showing heroic Chinese attacking cowardly Japanese and so on. However, Xi Jinping may be the only Chinese who doesn't believe that. And he's obsessed with it. He's like Mussolini. Mussolini was obsessed that the Italians have to be good soldiers. And he engaged Italy. He entered the war in 1940 to prove that the Italians had been, become like Romans again under fascist leadership. You know, they're all, as children, they're all put in uniform, given wooden rifles to drill with and so on. Well, Xi Jinping is the same thing. So I believe he, he wants to start a war. But you asked about Taiwan, and I don't think it's going to be Taiwan. Because in Taiwan, you have two problems. One, the Americans are kind of unpredictable. And the Americans do have aircraft carriers. Aircraft carriers carry nuclear weapons. Sinking an aircraft carrier is not something you do without huge consequence. They can sink one for sure. But the other bigger thing is this. The moment an American ship is sunk, no more bulk carriers arrive into Chinese ports. And China has now become a country that depends on bulk carriers coming in and bringing food, animal feed, uh, fuel, raw materials of all kinds. Now, if there is a war, they don't need to import, let's say, the iron ore 
stuff, you know, to to make uh, objects for export and so on, they can do without a lot of stuff. But if the bulk carriers don't arrive, the Chinese go into malnutrition quite quickly. And they are strangled. The economy is completely strangled and stopped. And they start running out to food. Um, so, so if you think that they want a war, but that it's not Taiwan, are you thinking it's the Tibetan province and, and that it's with India? Or is there no, a different I think conflict? It is with India. And would, the recent episodes uh, would be uh, what happened last week, right? First, that uh, the, the Chinese lieutenant colonel that is filmed on Chinese film clips as inciting fighting in June 2020, the fighting that eventually killed 30 Indian soldiers and so on. And he's actually filmed inciting it, saying, go, do it. That's all. There's an Indian officer trying to negotiate with him. He ignores him. That guy was chosen as an Olympic torchbearer. The guy, Indian government had not joined the diplomatic boycott. The Chargé d'Affaires in Beijing was going to participate, that to withdraw, because they chose him as an Olympic torchbearer to revive memories of this great glorious victory won by this. And the Chinese uh, uh, television run duly run the clips showing this great hero. And what the great hero is, is a man shouting, I don't care, go, do it, smash them, push them. I want to accept it, all right? That's the guy's Olympic torchbearer. Provoking, uh, you know, more than a billion people because that's how the Indians took it. Interesting exercise by his part. Second thing, they just published a book about their, what they called the, the, the self-defense border war, which was the surprise attack of October 1962, not in Ladakh in the West, but Arunachal, which is Northeast India, a whole state which China claims is Chinese and it's South Tibet. Having appropriated Tibet, now this is called South Tibet. When an Indian from Arunachal goes to the Chinese embassy in Beijing to get a visa to go to the Canton Fair, they say, you don't need a visa, you're Chinese. We'll give you Chinese travel papers, but we're not giving you a visa because you're Chinese, okay? They're climbing Arunachal. The fighting last year took place in Ladakh, in Ladakh itself, they're creeping forward. Having agreed to stay on a certain line, they're moving forward, <clears throat> creating pressure, right, as we speak. But that may all be a distraction, and they might really attack in Arunachal. And they just published a book in China about the glorious October 1962 victory. This is very, this is place where my, where he might, Xi Jinping might show off the new Chinese, uh, you know, the new Chinese who are really fighters and so on. Now, there's a real problem here because the PLA is smaller than the Indian Army, of course, much better equipped. Uh, they have a, a budget maybe three times bigger, the ground forces, but they are smaller. The Indian Army is much too big for its budget. They lack money for training and, and exercise and all these other good things. Uh, the, but the Chinese army has a problem. The problem is that the soldiers are single, single, the only child of a family. 
which means he's the only child, child of two lineages. There's presumably a mother from one family, a father from another. For each of them, is the only child. And so you, th- you think that the birth rate means that China will have a lower tolerance for losses and not be willing to send the boys off to war and to fight and be heroes? The fact is that Xi Jinping needs them to fight. And now that if Putin Putin has just gained Belarus, while the the world was looking at Ukraine, he just reoccupied Belarus. The uh, Russian troops people keep talking about are in Belarus, okay? Xi Jinping has a jealousy factor. This is this Mussolini moment. You know, Mussolini entered the war in 1940 because he was jealous, because Hitler had already conquered Poland, Denmark, Norway, and where is the Italians? Nowhere, okay? So he decides to join the war to show that the Italians are really tough, but there's a difference. Uh, Xi Jinping is bellicose, keeps making warlike speeches, uh, but uh, the fact is that the four casualties they suffered, the four dead Chinese in the June uh, 2020 fighting, each of them had to be made into a huge national hero to assuage the things, but uh, it's very difficult. And as a footnote, a little footnote, is that no army composed of single children has ever fought a war in human history. All the wars in human history were fought by spare children. Spare children. Uh, in there's a there's an American film called Saving Private Ryan, right? About the fact that the Ryan family lost three boys and there was a, the only survivor. So this whole film is about how to rescue and stuff. Well, all of the Chinese army is composed of private riots. So that's a real problem. But Xi Jinping is just determined to do it. And so I believe they're going to create more border trouble with India. There, there's a, a, a theory that Xi Jinping is obsessed with the idea of war on two fronts and that he's written about it. He has studied this topic and uh, that I, I wrote a piece about this last year that essentially that the conflict in June 2020 was timed to coincide with an increasing number of flights through Taiwan's air defense identification zone just to see what would happen if he both uh, provoked a fight in India and Taiwan at the same time? How does America respond that the whole thing was just a test provocation? Do you think there's anything to that? Well, yeah, except remember, the Americans, uh, you're not pulling the blanket to your feet or your chest because any American forces engaged in regard to Taiwan uh, would be entirely different from whatever forces or means were there. The only thing that you were dividing is policy attention, which is the time of the president, the NSC and so on. You're not dividing anything else. The Americans actually have a very effective way of supporting India, uh, which is that the Indians are fighting at 12,000 feet uh, in Ladakh and Arunachal also, 12,000 feet without having invested the trillion dollars they needed to have roads that could quickly resupply. Uh, You know, a mortar, a single mortar can fire a truckload of bombs in a couple of hours, 
but sending a truck uh, from the plains in India up to things with hairpin bands all the way might take a week. I mean, really, I mean, the, the way supplies go. The, Ameri the United States has sold India C-17s, which are powerful uh, airlifters with four strong engines and so on. These C-17s can land very, the airstrips that the Indians have built at high altitude can easily accommodate them. The Indians themselves have purchased an 11 of these C-17s so that they actually have all the accoutrements necessary in the in the planes below uh, the air bases. They have all the, you know, the, the fuel things fit and they have all the requirements. So the United States have come very quickly and multiplied their logistic capacity by a factor of 10, just by sending a couple of squadrons of C-17s there. And they're ready to receive them. So the Indian Army's big problem, if there's fighting up there, is that they have to creep up the mountains. The Chinese don't, because the Chinese do have to get onto the Tibetan Plateau, which they do from Yunnan and Shitswan, through roads or other means and so on, but they're on the plateau, so it's much easier for them to move to the different edges of the plateau on a horizontal plane, where the Indians have the climbing business. And this means, as I say, that ordinary resupply becomes hugely problematic. If you look at the map, for example, in Arunachal, in Northeast India, if you look at the map, you you on the flat map, and you put your ruler in, it's about 190, less than 200 miles from the river Brahmaputra, the flat, the total flat where they do have roads, rail, and so on, and the top of the mountains. It's less than 200 miles. It's 150 or something like that, miles. But the truck that moves from the plains to the top does about 1,500 miles because the hairpin bends. The roads go back and forward, back and forward, and so on. So this is the great weakness of the Indian Army, and this is the weakness that they, by building a few airstrips up in the high mountains, they remedied with these C-17s. And they have just enough to be able to have a good logistic base to receive many more. The United States can send them readily. They're very long range. They can send them there, and uh, they can solve the logistic problem with the Indian Army. So this is an, without sending combat aircraft, without shooting anybody. So it's an ideal thing from a strategic point of view and so on. And in Taiwan, on the other hand, it will be a question of deploying air power and so on. Unfortunately, submarines cannot be used because it is absurdly shallow. The water is absurdly shallow. And depths are like uh, 20 meter depths. So you can't, because this is all in the Bay of Amoy and so on. Interesting. Um, yeah. So... It two 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 areas i want to focus on from that one is um if there is in fact this conflict and there is some sort of blockade of china can we war game that scenario a little bit and how you think that would play out how china would respond i mean does, what what's the escalation or de-escalation path from there well, and what the is that the mechanics of it are relevant because this is not a blockade where you send a gunboat 
outside the port of Shanghai. This is what this is far away. A distant blockade. Right. And the distant blockade itself uh, has uh, has soft characteristics, not hard ones. For example, um, Australian, um, uh, let's say Australian uh, dock dockers refuse to to load the Chinese bulk carrier. Mm-hmm. Uh, would uh, if there's fighting uh, between, uh, let's say that the Chinese have sank uh, a, the smallest. The U.S. Navy has no small ships, but a Coast Guard vessel. We have Coast Guard vessels up in the Gulf of Tonkin, whatever. They sink a Coast Guard vessel. Uh, the uh, longshoremen don't uh, load anything going to China. They don't unload Chinese containers either. Uh, and that's their decision, right? The U.S. government is not going to send the, the police to arrest them or something or force them to load. Uh, so, in other words, a lot of the blockade is organic. Now, in Brazil, they might still be loading iron ore carriers, but iron ore carriers have an awful long way to go to reach China. Uh, and they cross the Atlantic and around the Cape of Good Hope, and then they have to go through the Straits of Malacca. And, you know, the Straits of Malacca, being Straits of Malacca, they can have impediments and so on. You know, uh, so anyways, blockade, blockade, uh, people keep saying the Chinese could sink an aircraft carrier. Right, but that doesn't matter, does it? Doesn't matter, okay? Right. It matters a lot in terms of escalation, who knows, and so on. But it's like the Battle of Jutland in the First World War. And people are still arguing who won, the Germans or the British. And people just forget how irrelevant it was because the Germans, had, the British imposed a blockade on Germany on the first day of the war. And in 1914, August 1914, by 1917, Germans were malnourished. And that is what would happen to the Chinese, except it would happen much faster. Because the Chinese now eat meat, and animal feed is all important. They grow the cereals, rice, they have enough rice for themselves, they grow some sorghum and millet, but the animal feed is primarily important. No animal feed, they run out of proteins. Not just meat, but milk. Um, there, there's a, a concept that China has talked about quite a bit called dual circulation in which uh, China wants to pursue what is essentially autarky and, and to have consumption driven internally, uh, more or, or fewer links with the outside economy. Do you think that China used COVID as some sort of, like it's zero COVID policy as a sort of pretext to drive towards dual circulation and autarky to close the borders, to disconnect links. And then, you know, hand in hand with that, what do you think is the best course for U.S. trade policy towards China over the next decade? I know you've written about this quite a bit in the past. Well, first of all, uh, you, You're quite right to raise dual circulation. It's very relevant in this discussion. So dual circulation uh, simply means that there is demand in China, 
the Chinese industry is not driven just by exports. There is demand in China, and that demand in China uh, should be supplied from China in order to reduce dependence and so on. And do remember that our preaching to the Koreans and to the Japanese back in the 60s and 70s was uh, release your domestic market. Uh, give us a chance to export to Korea, export to Japan by allowing your consumers to buy things because their policy was to export and not import in order to build up capital to go from Korean poverty. Korea was poorer than West Africa. To go and become rich was by exporting and not importing, uh, doing without and so on. And the United States was saying you have to import more because otherwise we have no chance and so on. Uh, we're going to be deindustrialized. The United States was deindustrialized because that is what the American elite chose. Now they're paying the political price for that, which is only fair. But going back, your circulation means uh, please be careful trying to be self-sufficient. Don't import uh, essentials. But unfortunately, they can't make it work uh, because... When you have a Chinese population that is no longer living miserably poor, no longer, when I first visited China was in 1976, Mao was still alive. And the Chinese were mildly malnourished. Um, and at the time when they couldn't afford to have any vehicles, they were other than bicycles. Uh, they were mildly malnourished. They couldn't have a, a they were living at an extremely low standard of living. And ch today's China is has a high standard of living, which is rising every day. Um, that critically depends on imports. Not the imports of manufactured goods, but the imports of raw materials. Now, dual circulation doesn't answer the problem, because even if you forget about exports, there's a war on so no exports. They still need uh, bulk carriers every day reaching into port in order to feed themselves. Now, why do they need it now and they didn't need it under Mao? Well, for one thing, the population has increased quite a lot. It's increased by the population, four times the population of France, at least, even more. Secondly, of course, the standard of living has exploded. and uh, some of the things they can sacrifice, others not so easily. One of them is nutrition. Uh, the, the Chinese family in Beijing, when I was first there, their big preoccupation in, I was there in September, in August, September, was buying cabbage. Every family bought cabbage. They put it on their balconies or wherever they could to dry it. So in winter, they wouldn't have just only millet, sorghum, or only rice, but they would have some vegetable. So their teeth wouldn't fall out. Their fingernails wouldn't go. So, so this st still, your circulation doesn't answer the problem. With this size population, you have to import. Uh, they can't do without. Their bulk carriers not arriving into port will mean that a lot of export industries won't have raw materials, so what? They don't have to export. They have huge reserves if they need them. But 
and they also need them to feed themselves. Um, you know, you mentioned raw materials. Tomorrow I am interviewing uh, a guy who has, he's South Sudanese and he's written extensively about Chinese colonization in Africa. I've written a lot about this topic as well. Uh, and my, my sort of theory on it is that China is, you know, for many years has been recolonizing Africa, uh, that the Belt and Road Initiative was was a part of that, but that uh, a big piece in the future is going to be building a military presence, first of all, along the Indian Ocean with the String of Pearls, and then all the way to the eastern shores of the Atlantic. Um, you know, how do you think that plays out? Do you think China will be allowed to militarize Africa the way it has militarized the South China Sea, for example? Well, South China Sea, they went and grabbed coral reefs and shoals, bits of rock and poured concrete and base it. This is my big accusation mm -hmm. against the Obama administration because Susan Rice, who was the national security advisor, persuaded herself that she could handle the Chinese. And therefore she blocked all attempts to object to this, stop this, either by uh, you know having freedom of navigation patrols, interfere with them. She even blocked complaints on environmental grounds. There were U.S. was silent. The U.S. silence while these bases were built is what uh, had, uh, you know, caused the Allies great anxiety, prompted finally the 2009 Australian White Paper, which was the first voice that said, unless we combine together to contain China, China will dominate even New Zealand, okay? Uh, the Australians were the first. Uh, the uh, uh, at that time, the Obama White House was focused on how great China is because China is responding to the U.S. demand in the financial crisis, the request, the U.S. request to Chinese and Europeans, please spend money. Spend money because we have a liquidity trap. Liquidity was disappearing and suddenly nobody had, you need to spend money. That's what you have to do. The Europeans said, what? What crisis? And it took forever to react, causing themselves to have a very lingering recovery. The Chinese responded beautifully. The White House loved the Chinese. I myself was in the spring of 2009, driving around Yunnan province with my wife and saw tens, tens of thousands of people doing shovel work next to the road even though by that time they really had bulldozers, but it was a way of responding to the U.S. request. The, the Chinese Treasury was working in tandem with U.S. Treasury, hence no response to their building of bases, even on environmental grounds. That they pulled off from the South China Sea. In regard to Africa, the problem they have in Africa is that their relations with African states go through a certain cycle. First, they arrive, they, they donate the stadium, they donate something that is highly visible and so on. And uh, everybody's excited because Chinese are going to bring help and big money and so on. The Chinese pay attention to countries that used to be French colonies, but the French have long lost interest in them, or British colonies, or whatever it was, and everybody loves the Chinese. Then there's phase two when the Chinese themselves uh, uh, are extremely exclusive 
They do not let Africans wander in and out of any of their facilities. They actually lock them up more than the British or the French ever did. Because even if, if the, the French at least allowed servants to come in to operate their clubs as colonial clubs, of course, they're all locals who come in and in the kitchen, the garden, if not allowed to sit at the table. Well, the Chinese don't allow anybody in. When they set up these medical laboratories in African countries, which they do, and they collect the DNA of anybody who walks in for any reason for treatment, the windows are black, and they don't allow any local doctors to enter the facilities or any local technical people. They only allow in a very special separated area for, for the local African patients who have no access to the rest of the building with black windows, okay? And they're doing a lot of sinister things, in other words, and the Africans notice it. So the cycle of Chinese relations with African countries is huge enthusiasm welcoming. In some of these countries, there are plenty of China hands. For example, Nigerians are big importers of everything, and there are thousands of Chinese who live in, of Nigerians in China who are buyers. You know, they buy stuff and send back home everything. After my, you know, the Guangdong Fair and so, uh, but uh, mostly great enthusiasm, and then there is a tension, there is isolation. The Chinese are much more exclusive than the colonialists ever were, and they are much more contemptuous of Africans than the British or French ever were, and it shows. And finally, you get to the stage where. A mob attacks the Chinese copper mine in Zambia and kills the Chinese staff because of the way they behave. Same thing happened with Ethiopia. The uh, Ethiopian Chinese investment, Chinese activity uh, were very important in the uh, very rapid growth of Ethiopia, which is the only African country that's had in recent years until the civil war uh, provoked to my amazement, which I couldn't believe it would happen. Until the Civil War, uh, the um, Ethiopia had the fastest growth rates, you know, and 89%. Chinese were very big in it, but the Chinese also donated the new African Union building in Addis, a very big building with the big uh, halls for the public meetings and many separate rooms so African leaders who were so separated and isolated could have their two you know, one-on-ones and the little meetings, everyone else. Well, uh, there was an electrical fault at some point. The Ethiopians discovered that every one of those were bugged. Every one of those rooms were bugged. And that they were rigged up with transmissions. And the transmissions, they were traced. They were going to Shanghai. That's wild. I didn't to, know that. That is really incredible. They were going to Shanghai, and they were traced eventually the Ethiopians called in the Israelis. The Israelis traced them all the way back to the particular building in Shanghai that was identified as a Chinese electronic intelligence building quite a few years ago because that's where cyber attacks were launched from. So That's incredible. So the Ethiopians discovered that all of it was bugged. The bugs were sophisticated in a modern way, you know, so they were actually put into the, the structure of the building and uh, in such situations, the economical thing to do is to destroy the whole thing. The Ethiopians will not do that, but you know, they're 
to be painstakingly going around. So they bugged the whole building. That's wild. Yeah, that's wild. So in that case, in that case, it wasn't a slow buildup of frictions that ruined the relationship with that formerly were so warm and hopeful. This was an explosive thing that happened. Explosive. So do you think? I mean, uh, do you think that countries will be choosing? sides and aligning like you know if if we rewind to the cold war you were either on team usa or team russia and are we going to have another scenario where countries are choosing sides you know lithuania recently uh sort of said they they're they're not going to support chinese actions Um, no no all lithuanians did all they did was that they uh wanted to have and open a trade office in Taiwan, you know, one guy right. in the century. And, and, the, and therefore, of course, it reciprocated that Taiwanese would send one guy in the secretary. The Chinese decided to attack Lithuania right. in order to scare, this is called, uh, you know, kill the chicken to scare the tiger, whatever the phrase <laughs> is, Chinese phrase. They decided to make an example of Lithuania and they started contacting the, all the German companies that have. Uh, plans to provide parts and components in Lithuania and said, if your, if your German equipment arrives in China, contains a Lithuanian component, we won't let you bring it, you know, we won't let it through the customs, right? So the Germans being Germans that promptly started cutting out the Lithuanian suppliers. There was a secondary boycott against Lithuania. Okay, that prompted Slovenia to want to open a Taiwan trade office in solidarity, okay? So um, this is the ch- ch- the the kind of uh, aggressive style the, of, that is favored by Xi Jinping uh, means that you know J- uh, China's been accumulating enemies. Okay, the American approach, of course, is a different one. When when uh, uh, when a country decides to uh, bring the Chinese in to build a port or a stadium or whatever. Some American experts can go toot toot, you know, oh, you shouldn't do it, you know, warn them off. But the U.S. government doesn't start uh, telling, uh, you know, calling on U.S. companies not to buy chisel slits or whatever it is or glue or whatever. Right. So uh, the Chinese are doing it. The Americans are not. The West is not. The West as such as it is. I mean, in regard to Ukraine, the West clearly doesn't exist because the Italians apparently have forgotten that Ukraine exists. The Germans have refused to help Ukraine and wouldn't even allow the British to fly an airplane carrying anti-tank missiles of their thing. Uh, so uh, we, there's going to be no response to the Chinese, I mean, uh, in those tit-for-tat terms. The Cold War was both sides. Each side was very tough about that. Now the Chinese are very aggressive, but the Western response is a very soft one. And the soft one in this case is better than the strong one because you don't go around making enemies for no reason. But so, we don't so will countries be picking sides? Is Sorry, just, excuse me? Will, will the countries be picking sides? Is everybody going to be throwing no, their no, hat in no, with one no, or no, the other? I don't think so. I don't think that there's a lot of that going on. During the, the Cold War, there was a lot that was. The Americans wanted all upstanding people, uh, 
all people around the world to behave like good and solid Christians against godless communism and so on. Even if they weren't Christian, even if they were godless. And there was a symmetrical lining up because there was a serious Marxist-Leninist ideology that said that this is all for the rich classes. And the Soviet Union was a humanist project gone wrong. It wasn't a Russian project. The China project is a Chinese project. Okay, They want people to become Chinese. Except that they don't. They're trying to, uh, as you know, Xi Jinping has revoked the nationalities policy. He doesn't want nationalities in China. They must all be Chinese. They, they shouldn't teach their children their own language, be it Tibetan, Mongol, Mongol or whatever it is, or of course Uyghur. Uh, but the Cold War was ideological. The Soviet Union was a humanist philosophy gone wrong. And the American, the Western, had the humanist philosophy. It was a clash between two humanist philosophies. And the Soviet side was saying, you have all these wonderful things, but you have a boss class. A boss class. Your capitalism is bosses. And we, on the other hand, are maybe doing everything wrong, but we want the people to have things and not the bosses to have everything. So there was a, a you know clash of two Western humanisms. There are two, there are basically two Christian heresies, or more accurately, two Jewish heresies. <laughs> two Jewish heresies fighting it out. That's With right. China is different. This is all about China. Right. It's all about China. It's about our civilization is the oldest, not true. It's the greatest, not true. And so on. And the problem Xi Jinping has is that he knows enough Chinese history to know that the one thing the civilization could never do was to defend itself. That's why China is ruled by all these conquest dynasties. Conquest dynasties. The last one until 1913, the, the Ma, the Manzhou. Um, so that, that's probably a... not Chinese. Chinese were not ruled by Chinese. They were ruled by foreigners. That, that's, to conquer them easily and rule them for a long time. Right. Um, so that's probably a good way to transition to uh, my next question, which is, do you think that the U.S. should be aligning more closely with Russia, a sort of reverse Kissinger, if you will, in order to gain an ally against China and to sort of cleave apart China and Russia? Well, that would be a... Uh, of course, a very logical scheme, but it it collides against two things. First, Putin needs to have adversarial relationships with the United States. Putin's uh, authoritarian rule within China, uh, within Russia, within Russia is based on the fact that the Americans are infinitely malevolent. And that Putin needs to defend the Russians from the infinite malevolence of the United States. You possibly are not aware of the fact that the United States operates a chain of 21 biological research stations around Russia for the purposes of trying to identify Russian, trying to identify and develop a virus that will selectively attack people with Russian genes. 
Wow, really? Uh, yes, yes. There are these biological research, uh, biological warfare laboratories. They're all around this. They're being described in great detail in, uh, you know, things like uh, the Russian internet magazines. Um, uh, there is the Ruski Vesna, which, uh, uh, which have long detailed, highly um, scientific uh, looking articles about these biological research stations with the Americans to destroy the Russian nation because they're conspiring to reduce the genes. They want to change the bodily fluids of the Russian people um, because of this particular hatred they have on account of the fact that the Russian people are the most noble people in the world. And they've been the victim of these conspiracies, like the Second World War, where the British, the, the British were enjoying themselves running around the desert playing at war uh, with a few thousand soldiers, and the Americans were uh, just uh, doing hardly any fighting, and all the fighting had to be done by the Russians. Uh, the Russians are the ones who defeated the Germans, who lost 20 million people, actually even more. Uh, you know, the Russian army had to bleed because the Allies were diddling their thumbs and they fought in 41, 42, 43, and only in late 44, they landed their little bit of forces in Normandy and so on. They hardly moved and uh, all food. Was, uh, you know, it's long grievances there and Putin needs American hostility. Putin cannot be friends in the United States and still have power in Moscow because everybody knows that his uh, villa on the, you know, on the Black Sea is a billion and a half dollar villa. It looks like a nice old. house. What? It looks like a nice house. Yeah, it's, except it's sort of huge. He got lost in it. And then uh, all his friends have to have multiple billions. And it's a whole kleptocracy. You know about the famous guys, the, the Rothberg brothers with the $3 billion each because they used to do judo with him. But what you don't know is that people like this all over Russia. There's a kleptocracy. It's a kleptocracy. Uh, and uh, Russians say, well, we know they're kleptocrats. They know they're all billionaires. But... We need them to protect us from the Americans, who are infinitely malevolent. So that's why the option doesn't exist. I've um I've written a lot in the past about for for the past couple of years about Nord Stream two and my general theory around Nord Stream two and around Russian gas is that uh, if you go back thirty plus years, there were these green groups in Germany that were protesting against nuclear power. And uh, I believe that it was essentially KGB active measures that were encouraging and even funding these protests as a way of undermining nuclear power in Germany. And then uh, at the same time, using uh, a policy of outright bribery with German politicians, um, with Gerhard Schroeder, and then with, with many others, you know, there's a policy in Germany called Schmuskers, in which uh, if a German politician doesn't do anything to upset Russia while they're in office. They get these consulting jobs when they leave office and, and they get a million euros That's a year. A, um, this is a wild accusation. Um, the fact that uh, three days ago, um, 
their former German chancellor, Schroeder, became a board member of Gazprom, which is the big uh, Russian oil and gas company, is a pure coincidence. You know, Schroeder, Schroeder after be, leaving politics, made himself an expert on gas and then put him on the board as an expert. So um, you, you really don't think it was it was No, it was 100% corruption. that you just explained. In other right. words, oh, German okay. right. corruption. It's German totally corruption. corruption. You know, uh, this is not the German uh, German corruption is not that there is this, um, you know, Ottoman uh, official with his big turban and you go and you give him a, a whole belt, a belt of gold coins right. to get permission to open the water supply for your town because otherwise he won't let you have the water. This is different. This is where you say, well, you know, we inflicted, we killed 20 million Russians and we are neighbors and what the hell and some and you do all that and you make good decisions and then you're going to end up on the board of spare bank exactly and just remember that not all of these people are as old as Schroeder. some of them are somewhat younger so when you get put on the board of a russian bank and there are some prominent italian also did that uh you get other things you get moscow girls i mean Russia may have a lot of shortcomings, but those of us who travel in Moscow and uh, Petersburg, as it now is, know that the girls are much more beautiful. Russian girls, I mean, they're not the girls of all Russia, some of which are very potato looking, but the ones in Moscow, because every beautiful girl in the whole country, the world's largest country, moves her long legs until she gets to Moscow, where somehow or other they will be marketed, either by finding the husband with the private jet, or at least a good BMW, or something else. You know, and uh, German politicians who go to Moscow on, on the board of these banks are getting a harem thrown into it. And some other Western Europeans and Italian uh, board members, and they get the harem. They, they get the girls thrown in. This is more than money, you know. We have a middle-aged German politician, somebody has these gorgeous girls, you know, much more beautiful than movie stars these days. Movie stars aren't pretty anymore, but they're gorgeous. I mean, you go to Moscow, you think that you're in a kind of a zoo of beautiful women. <laughs> I mean, it's incredible. It, it's clear that Russia has bought Germany, and they've done it pretty cheap. Uh, it's it's a right, really effective right, policy. They, yeah, you must understand that the Germans are good at everything except strategy. The Germans threw away a, a world-leading position in 1914 because they wanted little islands in the Pacific or some stupid thing like that. Uh, the Germans are good at everything except, except strategy. Therefore, they don't know how to play. They don't know how to deal with Russia in a strategic way. And the result is going to be... Uh, very bad for them, actually. Uh, so, so is NATO? Does NATO have any real power anymore? Is NATO well, toothless? No, no. NATO can function in so very well in the Atlantic area, for example, because uh, Norway is a NATO member that takes its membership seriously and invests money on real capabilities, and Denmark is a serious member. Um, the Netherlands uh, are a beautiful member, beautiful member. Uh, Portugal provides excellent bases, and uh, uh, Britain 
still retains considerable naval and air capabilities. So NATO is pretty strong in the Atlantic. Now, in Central Europe, on the hand, with Italy silent and absent, pretending it's not there, uh, Italy is the eighth largest economy in the world still. The Italians being completely passive and the Germans being hostile in Central Europe is very difficult. And it's even more difficult because of some peculiarities. For example, the Poles, instead of having a Finnish national defense to make themselves unconquerable, non-invadable, by simply conscripting Polish youth intensively and training them and then putting them in reserve so they would have three million poles with a small you know with light weapons and an anti-tank a few anti-tank rockets you know point to shoot which is what the Finns have um, the poles continue to to throw away their defense money on stupid things like a frigate in the baltic or something that can only serve as a target and shiny aircraft that depend on a base that will get blown up in the first five minutes of a war and nonsense like that. Instead of making themselves non-invadable and non-threatenable, which they could, and then they could turn the tables on the Russians and saying, you depend on all your contacts with Germany go through Poland, you know, except for air, and we will stop it. We'll turn the tables on the Germans and the Russians by saying, you don't pass. The road goes from Germany through Poland to Minsk. No more transit. So, right away, no tomatoes in the shops in Moscow that come from the Netherlands through Germany and Poland. You've you've written that um, there's you know a hundred thousand troops that Russia has massed on the Ukraine border, and you've you've tweeted no, no, extensively. No, I hear. I don't read. I said that's, that's fair. Community reports sure the latest reports is that they have the counting individual battalions and so on i tweeted about the battalions they have and so on right um, so so let's let's a, assume that that's an accurate number let's, yeah let's assume let's yeah. assume so you've written that you don't think that's enough for an invading army and that uh, right. and you, I, I think yeah. you said five hundred thousand is the number is you would really an adventurer is not an adventurer Putin is being very clever. He got Abkhazia, which is small, but is the southernmost Russian territory now because it has oranges and lemons and so on. It's very valued. It got Ossetia, also very small, but it's valued because they're Christian and they improved the Muslim-Christian balance in the Russian Caucasus. He got Crimea, which is uh, very important. It's kind of Florida for the Russian thing in a place with a lot of associations, the altar and so on. And he got them all as the ripe fruit that fell in his hands. Ukraine is not ripe. In Western Ukraine, a territory gifted by Hitler to Russia in 1940, um, the, uh, the people have, were never ruled in the, throughout the history by Russians. They were never part of Russia in any time. And Western Ukraine, they hate Russians. Uh, Kiev is a city of uh, two and a half million inhabitants, just about. Um, if you send an army of, uh, of 150,000, 160, whatever the number is, which is even below that right now, you send them into Europe's largest country, Ukraine, 
they'll be lost even in the city of Kia. Uh, this is just not a lot of troops. And uh, that will invite resistance. People will start showing up, shooting at them, and pointing um, bazooka rockets at them, and the equivalent thereof. Particularly uh, if, uh, the, for example, the countries, the NATO countries that whose ground forces have been greatly reduced in the last 20 years, going to the depots and supply some of this stuff to the Ukrainians. You know, mm-hmm. point and shoot anti-tank rockets. Or when there is such a small number of total troops spread out in a huge country, they are very vulnerable. And I, I don't believe Putin is an adventure. I think he's trying to in- intimidate the Ukrainian government. And I have, you said you read my tweets. I greatly deplore the intelligence community uh, which is a horrible problem Americans have. We have good soldiers, we have good diplomats, and our intelligence is terrible. Our field intelligence is so useless that that when uh, people like Biden were claiming that the Afghan army was a fraud because the CIA was knew nothing. Okay, in Kabul, they might have 700 people in Kabul, all within the building, none of whom speak right. They're not out on the streets. Or right. Uzbek or you know Pashtun or anything don't go in the streets. They don't hear people making fun of the Afghan army. Now you pay a little extra, you enter as an officer, you get paid much more. You know you pay more bribes to the Karzai family or whatever, and they don't report back to Washington. So in this context, the same intelligence community uh, two weeks ago scared everybody, precipitated a shameful and damaging evacuation of the U.S. Embassy in Kiev, you know, to took away the families and stuff. All of it based on a false invasion warning. At that time, the troop count was, uh, they had barely, in terms of field forces, maybe 80,000. So they had launched a premature hysterical warning that caused disastrous consequences because this evacuation demoralize the Ukrainians at the very time when the Putin was trying to demoralize them. They were really playing into the hands. So now they come up with new numbers, but uh, their performance has been terrible. You know, the philosophy of American intelligence, their, their doctrine is don't learn foreign languages, it's hard. Don't serve out of embassies, it's uncomfortable. In some places, maybe even dangerous. And then write alarmist warnings so nobody can say that you didn't warn. So, you know, I I think that one of the best accomplishments of Biden's presidency is that he actually got us out of Afghanistan. It was a conflict correct. with it had no clear mission. Uh, and no, it was just operating, uh, you know, serving to to uh, feed the, the corruption. That's right. That's right. And I, I think that the, you know, the, the military industrial complex uh, was was devastated. I think they tried to shame Biden to stay in Afghanistan. They portrayed the withdrawal as going very badly so that we could stay there so they could keep selling stuff. So, you know, I I don't think it's something so um, I I regret to say I don't agree with this. Um, I think this was a not cold blooded, cleverly calculated way of keeping in Afghanistan. Afghanistan is not a place where they sold a lot of stuff. they, uh, it was a complete lack of field intelligence. Mm-hmm. Being in Afghanistan without knowing anything about it, 
they're not even overhearing people in the bazaar making fun of the Afghan army as a as an outdoor relief and racket and fraud. Okay, they didn't report that. Uh, secondly, we have the PhD generals. You know, we have right. the trails. We have the scholarly generals who, when Trump wanted to withdraw from Afghanistan, saying this is a fraud, let's go home. Uh, but they said no. Uh, with a little more training, the Afghan army. You know, so we were spending three billion dollars just on the American trainers of this Afghan army. Okay, three billion dollars, and Petraeus uh, kept. You know, he's. Uh, was very good with the media. You know, right. they thought he was a great man, a great genius, or whatever it is. And uh, so, when Trump wanted to withdraw, Petraeus was in, and Mattis, of course, right. is the great hero. And so, Mattis undoubtedly it was a Marine officer who was extremely uh, very capable, more than capable at the operational level. The famous drive up to Baghdad really was a significant military achievement. However weak the Iraqi army was, the fact is that just as a kind of display of great energy and so on to push and bear with uh, amphibian tractors go all the way to Tikrit, amphibian tractors meant to be used on beaches and all great stuff. However, clearly strategy was above his pay grade, above his pay grade in every respect, including Afghanistan in believing the fraud and all that stuff. Petraeus kept going to Afghanistan. And in fact, he went to Bagram Air Base uh, and uh, shut down. There was a little group of uh, this kind of retired special ops guys in the base who were providing beer, the only beer in Afghanistan. And Petraeus said, oh my God, that's against holy Islam and holy Quran. You know, he was a big holy Quran guy and very good at PR. Uh, they're all fools and uninformed and didn't know where they were. I mean, I, I actually think it's were. it's more than that. I think that a lot of these, the military leadership, I think the generals, they like us being at war because they have more clout. Because when no, we're... I, I, I wish it was, I wish it was not. It's not. It's nothing so calculated. It is just, uh, as I say, it's a failure. It's incompetence, really. Right. Failure of intelligence. When we have a tank gun fitter in the U.S. Army, he knows how to fit that gun, okay? We have diplomats, and I don't mean the great famous ambassador so-and-so who did this or that. I mean that at eight, if you call at four in the morning the U.S. Embassy in Tegucigalpa, Honduras, and you get the duty officer, wherever he is, the duty officer will be aware, will be there, will answer the phone, We'll respond, we want to be. We have good military and good diplomats, and we have terrible field intelligence. I don't mean people who operate satellites and things like that, but we are for situational awareness. I don't mean to go into the other guy's defense ministry and steal his war plan. Situational awareness, you have to be on the ground. And the Central Intelligence Agency, which is great at press relations, Wonderful the media relations. They always own the journalists that the Washington Post who writes about them. Right. They feed, they're the sources for everything. They feed you know, it all. This one guy, and now they have somebody else who is uncritical because they feed them stuff. They're great in Hollywood. They always respond and provide support. So Hollywood makes movies where CIA just do this and that. I was particularly 
uh, annoyed and very annoyed about uh, a movie they made about uh, Charlie Wilson's war or something like that, about U.S. help in Afghanistan. So I was the fellow who provided the information and the weapons and all those years ago to provide uh, anti-aircraft uh, guns for the Mujahideen. And in the Hollywoodian version, they gave the credit to the CIA guy. The very CIA people that uh, came to my house and be, to argue that these guns didn't exist because they didn't know that. You know, they. I mean, we have awful. We they refuse to serve in the field. They insist even in Beijing, where there are like three hundred thousand expatriates of different nationalities. They only operate out of embassy. Mm -hmm. Hence, any Chinese who's dumb enough to sign up as a source for them gets caught because they come out of embassy, okay? And they go meet them in restaurants thinking that they won't get caught. And of course they are. Uh, they're not in Tehran. I mean, Tehran, you know, I actually interviewed one of the Israelis who operates in Tehran and they've blown up things, they've done whatever they wanted, they intercepted, they've gone back again and again to facilities and put down stuff. I said, how difficult it is to operate in Tehran? And the guy's answer was, I have to tell you that you go to Tehran and there are consequences because Persian food is really wonderful. But they have this white rice, you know, this rice which is shiny and delicious, much better than Chinese rice or Japanese rice, but it's actually with butter, you know. So you go there, no matter what you do, when you come home, you put on weight. <laughs> And that, and I said, any other problems in operating in Tehran? Uh, he says, uh, no, no. The CIA refuses. For them, it's too dangerous. Wow. Okay? Good. Too dangerous. And so, I know this. I was a taxpayer. I bitterly resent that I have to pay taxes to support people who say we can't operate undercover because, you know, we have to go to PTA meetings or whatever. But they're extremely good on affirmative action. Right. On gender, transgender, triple transgender, you know, double transsexual. They're great at that. And, they, and as I say, wonderful press relations. CIA always owns the Washington Post on CIA coverage. Right. And there was so, another guy, and now there's another guy. And so they're having a, an intelligence organization, which is good in its home country, in Washington, and terrible overseas, is a heavy weight. And it's caused this huge problems. President Biden, when President Biden in 2009 was vice president and continued throughout his vice presidency to say that the Afghan army was a fraud and that we should not do it, he was right. But when he ordered the evacuation to finish this fraud, he didn't realize that he was right, more right than he thought he was right. Because it was a total fraud that didn't even put up a show of resistance. They handed over the weapons. To whom? To these madrasa products who had had a, maybe a couple of weeks of shake and bake training with, uh, you know, with all rifles. And they surrendered. So the CIA did not report that. When Vice President Biden tried to stop the Obama administration going down this rat hole, the, he got no support from That's the right. agency. He was the only yes, one. The slick generals, That's the right. slick generals with all the medals, you know, with the crest of medals and stuff. Yeah, he, he was all the only the, one. The United States has not won a war 
with the exception of 1991 Gulf War, Desert Shield. Desert, Desert Storm, War. right. One and only. But mysteriously, they're covered in medals. I, um, so, so as we talk about the military, um, you know, the Air Force is working on the B-21 bomber. We have the F-35s, which are brand new. Uh, but yet at the same time, unmanned aircraft are incredibly sophisticated. I, I have a theory that we're only building more manned aircraft because the admirals running the show are mostly former pilots. That was a prestigious job. They want to create jobs. Do you think we should be creating manned aircraft or is yeah, this a not, boondoggle? Not, you're right. You're completely right. But they're not cynical. They are talking themselves into it. The B-21 is a double absurdity because the B-21 is a nuclear delivery aircraft. And it's supposed to give us the triad. You have the submarines, the live land-based missiles, and there's a good argument for that, except that the B-21 is being designed to be alternatively manned and unmanned. So in other words, it has all the costs of an unmanned aircraft and all the costs of a piloted aircraft. And why the hell do you want to pilot in a nuclear delivery vehicle? Okay, right. he's supposed yeah. to drop a nuclear bomb, and then he's supposed to come back. Then you have to have the return bases. He has to have the recovery bases. He has to have the two-way range, all to have somebody sit in that cockpit. This is a pure case of cavalry. This is the horse cavalry in 1914. In 1914, you have the Maxim machine gun that fires 550 rounds per minute, making cavalry charges impossible. Okay, it didn't matter. If you have every horse in the world, you have 10 machine gunners, they're going to the win. Right, the then they win. Right? Yep. right. It took forever. Because why? Because the, all the top generals in the First World War, almost all of them, were cavalry officers. Cavalry officers were socially higher class than the infantry officers, and they were the generals. And so if, uh, while a British, uh, the British Army only had two machine guns per battalion, which means you have 600 soldiers and two machine guns, you don't know what to do with them. Uh, they had all these horses, which couldn't be used. They had to feed horses that couldn't be used. And once they tried to use them here and there, uh, they got massacred. It took until three years of that before the cavalry starts getting reduced and horses get repurposed to drag artillery. Right. I mean, we're always right. we're always building. So what we have here, the B twenty one, is a is a complete example of the cavalry mentality. It is a flying object to carry nuclear weapons for nuclear deterrence, in which you spend triple the money because you have to have it go two ways. You drop a thermonuclear weapon, and then you have to be recovered. You have to have alternative recovery bases for it. You have to have refuelers waiting for it to make it home. And this is an absurdity for one guy sitting there and having a peeing device so he can pee while he's flying. <laughs> for all this, you spend billions and billions and billions. There's absolutely right. no justification for it. Um, so, so switching gears uh, to a few more offbeat questions, if we can. Um, first was, I, I read that you uh, enjoy snorkeling quite a bit. I was in uh, Mexico this weekend, and I went snorkeling in the cenotes near Tulum. Uh, curious, have you traveled any place great recently for pleasure uh, or, or otherwise, and or done any snorkeling lately? 
while uh, I was in December at the other end, of, at the very end of Mexico, Ixcalac, the very last place opposite Belize, very nice, but unfortunately the coral is gone. But then again, uh, three weeks ago, I was in Morea, which is the island next to Tahiti, and the coral is intact, I'm happy to say. Moreover, while I was there, I heard on the local media that they found a whole coral reef not far from Tahiti, which is perfectly intact, but it's somewhat deeper. It's not just the, you know, it's a, it's not really scuba depth, but it's more than snorkel depth. It's one of those things, you know. Right. But uh, yeah, I love snorkeling, and uh, and uh, well, I, I've been lucky because I've been I I was snorkeling. Uh, I, I've been to the Maldives, like millions of Europeans. It's a well, it's quite fun. I was, uh, but I was snorkeling in the Red Sea before there was any tourism. I was a Sharm el-Sheikh in 1967 when it was like a miraculous thing, you know, with uh, the most I mean, the most beautiful coral, still is, I think, in the world, is Ras Muhammad, which um, the Egyptians have taken quite good care of it. Um, there was a lot of poaching originally, but they stopped it a long time ago. They, you know, they built a tourist industry there. The Red Sea Urgada is great stuff. I'm sorry to say that the best place in the Red Sea is Port Sudan, which being Sudan is not exactly accessible, but some brave sort of spirits have been going there. Um, and, uh, but at the top, for me, uh, is uh, Rinka which is the desert island near Komodo in Indonesian waters. And in Rinka, you see something unique. You see monkeys and deer playing on the beach. They're not eating, they're not doing anything, actually playing. They're playing together. And in the waters around Rinka and Komodo, you have wonderful coral, great fish, everything else. The only thing is I got the biggest scare in my life. I mean, I practically went, uh, I mean, cuckoo in fear. I mean, I was terrified. Because I was swimming there, and I suddenly realized that there was a Komodo dragon swim, swimming next to me. Now, when I'd seen Komodo dragons just before in Komodo. They're so heavy. They're so heavily built. They never, and their arms are short, very short arms. It never occurred to me that they could swim. Suddenly, there was a frigging Komodo dragon there. I skedaddled out. I rushed out as fast as I could. You know, they, they kill you with a slight bite, you know, because they have all these bacteria and so But it was a, but Indonesian waters, you're snorkeling where there's nobody snorkeling, right? It's just you. Right. Well, it's a great thing. It's a great thing. But Morea, which is so simple, you can fly from San Francisco or Los Angeles. It's about seven, eight hours to Tahiti. And then you take a ferry, you go to Morea which is very comfortable, beautiful place. And so the Polynesians are great people to be with. And Morea is a great, it's such a wonderful place. Unlike Bora Bora, where they built hundreds of hotels. In Morea, right. there are three small, you know, not Less small, developed it, there, yep. Ah, much less developed. And you have this wonderful mountain rising in the middle of it and great uh, coral fish and everything else. But uh, still... The best is French Polynesia, but not, you know, the, if you really go for that, you have to go to the rudely named Fakarava at Atoll, 
Because if you're a Fakarava and you're a snorkeler, you think that you were dead and reborn in snorkel heaven. Because you see every damn fish in the Pacific. That's a great every name. Every shark, every type of shark, and and uh, tuna, everything, and uh, octopus, and squid, and and then 10,000 colored fish of different colors. That are just uh, fabulous. Fakarava is the place to go if you're a snorkeler. It is it. It's a pass. You um you mentioned how the CIA has all these great TV shows about it. Um, you know, reminded me I I uh, I recently watched a show called Le Bureau, which is about the DGSE in France. Yes, and it's uh it's a fantastic show. It does a really great job of portraying. What's the name of the show? The Bureau. Le Bureau. Right. Yep. Le, Le, Le Bureau. Bureau. Yep. Le Bureau right. des de Légendes. Uh, and it's about um. Really, the four-dimensional chess that needs to go into very high-quality intelligence work. Not about the shooting and the guns, but about the actual on-the-ground intelligence work. And it's a, it's and a fantastic where was show. the setting of this show? So it's set in a few places, partly in Paris, of course, where the headquarters of the DGSE are, but then partly in, uh, in Syria, in Algeria, in Iraq, um, where you have the actual intelligence agents, also uh, in, in Russia— in Ukraine, where where the intelligence agents are on the ground cultivating sources and and doing the work to right. try to well, build out that know, network, I've I've run into these characters uh, around the world, you know, uh, and um, they, you know, the shows are better than the performance, right? Okay? In the case of the Americans, it's extreme, okay. Uh, in Hollywood, CIA agent is somebody who speaks the language, moves around, is very clever and very bright. Uh, it's a complete fabrication, complete fabrication, zero. Um, the um, uh, the French the French do not have a good history with operations, as you know. Uh, they failed in operations, but they, uh, but they have one big strength, and that is that. They are closely connected to the French Foreign Ministry, which is a very serious ministry. The British advantage with the Secret Intelligence Service, SIS, the one popularly called MI6, is that it's under the Foreign Office. But as Dean Acheson told me himself, because I was a, a boy briefcase carrier for the great Dean Acheson, State Department dropped the ball on intelligence. The diplomats didn't want to have anything to do with these people who open other people's letters, right? And the State Department abandoned intelligence, hence it got as an independent entity, and hence the horrible problems begin. Uh, the big advantage of the British is that no operation gets conducted anywhere in the world without the consent of the British ambassador in that country, which creates a, a filter when you have really crazy plans of some normal, sensible person saying, no, this is crazy. Uh, that rule that would say would have saved us from a lot of embarrassments uh, from CIA screw-ups, and uh, it also situational awareness and all these other things. And uh, yeah, we need to reorganize intelligence. It's a huge weakness for the United States. Manifest most recently in Afghanistan, right? Where um, the U.S. withdraws, not realizing that the Afghan army is a hundred percent fraud, as indeed Biden said. And it's a tragic irony that Biden gets blamed for the debacle, which he had tried to prevent. 
Right. I mean, you, intelligence is really a euphemism in a, in a lot of these uh, contexts. Well, um, I mean, in, in operations. When you watch a show, you're watching operations. Right. You're not watching actual intelligence. Okay, intelligence is much more important than operations. Operations, but the U.S. way to do special operations, and there's an admiral who goes around making speeches about how great he was or where they were, uh, is that when you have an old man and a gardener, you send two helicopter loads of seats. One of the helicopters then crashes. This place, Abbottabad, is a very busy place full of Pakistani military. That's why. Osama bin Laden was there with the full support and knowledge of the Pakistanis. Of course. And then you send two helicopters. Now, the Israeli style to do it would have been different. They would have flown to Islamabad with Pakistani airlines. They would have taken a taxi and argued with him about the fare. <laughs> and then they would arrive at the iron gate of the compound in Abbottabad. And by the way, the only good road in Pakistan is between Islamabad and Abbottabad. So when when um, Osama bin Laden went to Islamabad and so on, he didn't have to be uncomfortable. It's still a very good paved road. It's the <laughs> only good one. So they would take this taxi ride, get to the Iron Gate, knock on the gate. The guy opens the door. They would shoot him with a pistol. Then they would go in, and then they would shoot Osama bin Laden. We had this rusty Kalashnikov. Then they would take a tissue sample. Then he'll come back, have another argument with the taxi driver, <laughs> go back to Islamabad and take a flight out. Okay. Two guys, two guys, one taxi and some. The US style is helicopters, and one of them crashes, fuck right. up and so Operations the CIA doesn't do. They have them over to the special ops world. I worked in the special ops world. I was the only a civilian on the Joint Special Operations Agency, the predecessor of the Joint Special Command. I was hired by um, famous Irish Flint, so-called Admiral guy there. And they started very well as small and capable. Then it got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And now they have this buffoon, McRaven, who goes around exemplifying the great hero who was part of this turning of a small, dedicated Delta Force were very small and dedicated. They had a bad commander, a drunkard, but then they got really good. Uh, the the UDTs were great, the SEALs were great, and the idea would be to, the Green Berets are very good. They were not that kind of special operations, you know, but they were really good and impressive. And, but now it's become a bloated special operations command, which is like a fifth service. They have to have, they procure their own toothbrushes and they do all the stuff that services do. It's really bad. We need to slim them down, bring them down, and restore true quality without all this noise and bombast. Don't send two helicopter loads of seals to attack an old man and his gardener, okay? Overdoing it is bad. You know, these things should be done on a low scale. Right. Um, so, all right, last question. Could could you share a bit about your work style, your writing style, your reading list? You know, I, so, for example, I read everything from Tyler Cowen, the New York Review of Books, The Economist, and Mike Solana, and a lot of other much more obscure things. What is your daily or weekly reading list, what is your working well, style? I, I consider all these things you mentioned as a waste of time. Okay. I read 
the Times Literature Supplement, and I read the London Review of Books, which is extremely left-wing and intent. Yep. But left-wing or not left-wing, an article in the London Review of Books is written about, let's say, Iraq, is written by somebody who is in Iraq, who knows Iraq very well, who knows quite a lot of Arabic, and who writes reality, okay? Their reporting is much better than intelligence reporting. Yep. Okay. The Times Literature Supplement, on the other hand, when there's a book that comes out, a serious book, serious book, they get the expert in the field to review it seriously. Not for, you know, Joe blogs, but for, for experts. What the New York Review of Books does is a very highly deceptive method. What they do is they write like as if they were the Times which is supplement for a reader who knows the stuff he's supposed to know, and if he doesn't, we'll look it up. But then to accommodate the reader who isn't really that accomplished, what they do is like they write the knowing style, but then they insert all the data, you know. They say, oh, you know, Prague and so on, the capital of, uh, you know, they've developed a house style. The Economist, on the other hand, is a worthless magazine from my point of view because they hire all these young Oxbridge people, pay them very little, and teach them the knowing style, you know. Right. And, you know, glib knowing, uh, you know, and so on. But uh, somebody actually did the study of their predictions. They're always wrong. Yeah, you can't no, you can't read the economist for predictions. Wrong. They're economist, always wrong. Yep. Self-confident knowing and wrong yep. about everything. They're always okay. wrong. But they, but it's good I, I find it's good wrong. reporting on yeah, interesting topics. If you're interested in if you're interested in, in glib Oxbridge writing by people always wrong, you read it. But I read only these two places. The Times is some women and it's short. Look, uh, it's a it's a very thin thing, comes out once a week, it has uh, Things, but it covers all the fields that I don't follow seriously. So, so astronomy and so on, you know, which have, because they review all the serious books, and the London Review books review some books, and then they have some articles, but they're in depth. Now, the, I hate the fact that the editors worship that fabricator Edward Said, who fabricated. The, the you know writings uh, to be able to accuse these Orientalists and so on. Uh, I hate the, their left wing politics, but the, but as I say, their 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 articles are very serious articles. I mean, really worth reading, and that's what I read. I read, and I don't read anything else um, in terms of magazines and so on. And and also, I'm really a, a very I'm not a, a, an exemplary book reader at all because. I, I spend all my time reading classical texts. So I have a complete Greek and Latin library. I haven't read my way through all of it, and that's what I read. I read uh, uh, Greek and Latin uh, texts. That's what I do. Excellent. Uh, I have a room full of, my library consists of that. And uh, a lot of things, occasionally there are great books that come away, uh, even though I'm so careless about looking and stuff. There's one, a superior book I'm reading now about the uh, Russian-Chinese frontier. Life along the Russian-Chinese frontier uh, with all the interactions between Russians and Chinese and so on and so forth. That is the frontier, as you know, formed in the east part, most of it, by the two transfers of territory. The Treaty of Aigun and the Treaty, the Convention of Beijing. Uh, and the 
the, the reasons the Russians cannot live in a world in which China is number one is because they would lose their maritime provinces, which the Chinese claim. And the, uh, the Navy, Russian Navy University in Vladivostok, the Nisokoi University, has a very uh, wonderful researcher there has published a book about Chinese frontiers explaining that the Chinese claims against Russia are dormant and that they are waiting for the moment. Anyway, very nice that, talking to you. Yeah, thank and, you for uh, your time. I, I, I really appreciate it. Um, you know, for, good, for our good, listeners, good. they can find you on social media. I, I highly recommend your books. And, uh, you know, thanks, thanks again for joining today. Well, as I said, my Twitter account, I've been using it to express my views, you know, the sort of, uh, in, since I started it uh, two years ago. So I, I will definitely yeah. include a link to your Twitter account in the, yeah, uh, in mean, the notes I, from I the show. I don't get any commercial benefit from it, but sure. I, it's, a, it's a way for me to express my strategic views. I don't write about anything else. I don't write about my toenails, but right. just strategic issues. Bye-bye. Thank you very Bye-bye. much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.